Welcome to Breaking Down Bits, a conversation about great comedy bits with the comedians who wrote and performed them. Hey, Breaking Down Bits. I'm Brian Gendron. I'm Drew Jordan. Welcome, uh, technically... The season finale, of, season finale of season three. A great guest today. Uh, a lot of fun stuff going on in the world of of breaking down bits and all that stuff. Thanks for coming out and doing the doing the feedback, Mike. Having a blast there. Uh, so many good comics coming in. If you haven't done that, pop in Tuesdays, uh, nine p.m. Eastern. Just shoot us a message. Breaking down bits at Gmail, uh, and uh, hop in there. It's a fun time. You should do it. Yeah, you can get to us on social media as well at Breaking Down Bits. That's where a lot of you guys asked to be on that mic. It's Tuesday nights. It's at 9 p.m. Eastern. We have done it, Drew, religiously, almost without fail every Tuesday this year. So we're, we're killing it. Doing it. Yeah. Doing it. A great place to try out new jokes. Safe space. Uh, and you'll get a tag and you'll meet a friend who lives somewhere all over the world. So <laughs> it's a good time. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, let's talk about our last episode. Time for callbacks. What'd you get from our talk with Jordane Fisher? I think what he does, I mean, he does a lot of things very well. One of the things that really jumped out to me is just the way he commits to the bit. He he dives in and that's something that's hard sometimes when you're a new comic and you're writing a new joke that you're not, you know, you like it, you think you like it, don't know if the audience is going to love it or not. And so sometimes you hold back just for, for your ego's sake. And uh, he dives in, does a lot of voices like his one bit about how when people are telling people that they're going to take a break from Facebook and he's, they write it like a colonial time, like dearest Facebook, you know, he just commits and really delivers a great act out. And that's just a great reminder for everyone who's writing is, uh, you know, you're going to get the bigger laughs. If you, if you fully invested in the bit, if you're sheepish about it, chances are the audience is going to sniff that out. Yeah. I love that you called out that that develops over time too. So you get the first, you get sort of the word, the words out. And then over time, you, you sharpen the act outs and, and the, the, the verbal inflection and all that stuff. So uh, stick with those jokes and, and don't forget they're never finished. And Jordan's a great example. In that clip, we watched a four minute clip. He had six different vocal act outs. It's incredible. And they're all great. So uh, check out that episode. Uh, my, my takeaway from it was segues. Uh, I listened to his comedy album. It's terrific. And I was 28 minutes in. I thought I was only like, five or 10 minutes in just the time passes there. He doesn't give you a break. You don't need to reset. I think that some people debate on this, like you should have clear sort of start and finish to your jokes. I disagree. I think it's, it's wonderful how he does that keeps it rolling. And, you know, over the course of a 45 minute set, you know, it's just, it's, it's all one complete piece uh, seamless transitions between topics. He does a wonderful job at that. So I think putting time in segues is a great thing to do uh, as, as you fill out your set. Yeah, and I was telling you, like in radio, we do the same thing. I, my profession has been radio stuff, and like you, you don't you don't create tune out moments as we call them. Like if 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 the song transitions into the the spots and the stuff, and it goes right back into the songs really smoothly, then you never think about something else. You just you stay engaged the entire thing, uh, and that's what's awesome about what he does. 
Absolutely. So you can get to that on, of course, iTunes and, and Spotify and all the places. But BreakingDownBits.com is where you can get access to all of it. Uh, it's also on YouTube. So please go back and check out that interview with Jordan Fisher and all the other interviews that we've done so far to get to this point. And to this point, are we ready to yeah. bring in our guest? Let's do it. Born in New Jersey, raised in Atlanta, and the 2012 winner of Houston's Funniest Person, Matthew Broussard is not exactly sure where he's from. Matthew earned a degree in applied mathematics and had a job as a financial analyst before moving to West Hollywood to pursue stand-up comedy full-time. Aside from his popular webcomic, MondayPunday.com, he's appeared on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, The League, The Mindy Project, Conan, Roast Battle, and he has his own half-hour special on Comedy Central. He also co-hosts a podcast with his girlfriend called She Does Stand Up Too. Wow, Matthew Broussard, how are you, man? Hello. Hi, I'm doing well. That video was on mute for me, and uh, I left it that way. (laughs) I hate hearing myself, so. Uh, I can just watch myself mime these jokes and guess what jokes they are. (laughs) It was actually me it's blowing smoke up your ass for the for the 30 <laughs> seconds talking about your amazing career uh so you you missed all oh of that. it was a voiceover yeah, yeah. Oh, actually okay. i didn't i think i watched I learned that from... in the email okay oh yeah actually i didn't know i thought i've only known you as a houston comic didn't realize from the northeast originally um and you bounced around a little not bit. not so really was... i left when i was not three okay so you got you got your start there and that's pretty much it your your actual birth yeah so did you start yeah, comedy in Houston? Is that where you is that where you started or did you start somewhere else before Houston? Uh, I started in Houston, yes. Okay, sweet. Yeah. Are we having a really serious delay here? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can see you talk and then the words come in three uh, seconds later. Let me refresh. Should I just refresh the uh mind if I just refresh the, yeah. the page? Go. Cool. Let's do it. Hey, um, we're back. It seems to be synced up this time. Uh, Hooray. It sure does. Welcome back. Right. Welcome well, to the Ventriloquist podcast with <laughs> Drew and Brian. It's like yeah. it's like when Rita Repulsa talked on the Power Rangers. The words just didn't match <laughs> the mouth at all. <laughs> Rita Repulsa. What a oh, what a reference. <laughs> Who's your favorite ranger? You got you got to um, do it, mate. I mean. Uh oh. Green was re- original. Green was really cool. He was a rebel. He was a badass. I mean, yeah. I Jason go David Green. Frank, Houston Jason guy. Da- Houston guy. He would yeah. come to Mike's that I would, early on, he was at Mike's. I don't know if I ever performed for him, but I know one of his good money buddies was doing open mics and he was around the scene when I started. Uh, uh, a fighter. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So tell us about, so we're, we are immersed in the Houston scene, obviously now uh, we run a show here and uh, tell us about the scene years ago. I'm sure I wonder, and you've been back to visit. How, how's it changed? I started in 2011 um, at uh, Sher- Sherlock's. No. Yeah, probably Sherlock's. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Which I think three months prior had been the laugh stop, the legendary laugh stop where, um, yeah. Uh, uh, Mark Marin, Dane Cook, Louis C.K., Mitch Hedberg all recorded albums. It was a legendary room. It was a Tuesday through Sunday room, um, and it had shut down at the end of that at, at the end of that boom. And it was now just a restaurant that had a Monday night mic. 
uh, where, I don't know, 30, 40 people would sign up every Monday. I came, I put my name in the bucket. I got called fourth, which I think was, was significant in that it was a good enough spot that I felt like coming back um, and, and had a fun time. And it was, um, there was the Houston Improv at the time, which was hard to break into. It was a big room. It featured mostly black acts who were able to fill that room, 460 seats. Uh, we also had the Comedy Showcase, which someone told me about after a few months of doing bar open mics and uh, just really grinding it out. Chase DeRusso told me to start hanging out there every weekend, and I did, and I started getting guest spots. Uh, and that was that was a little farther out, all the way to the, the southeast corner of the Beltway, so um, um, maybe a more blue-collar room. Uh, and that's where I really learned to stretch out and... Um, it was it was a more bar and club focused scene. We didn't have an alt scene. You either did open mics or you're booked at the clubs. There was nothing in between. Yeah, and not terribly different now. I mean, <clears throat> a lot of bar shows still in Houston. We do have the independent club Secret Group, which mm -hmm. does, uh, you know, they're opening back up shortly and a lot of opportunities there. Uh, but yeah, it's really, I mean, for local comics, the improv here in Houston is just a, a dream, but really hard to get your start in a club like that because it's just the opportunities are so limited. Right. Yeah. There's only the, you know, one or two book spots a weekend. A lot of those acts bring in their own openers, yeah. uh, but it was, it was a great place to learn because I really learned in these kind of tougher rooms, how to command an audience, uh, mm -hmm. bars. I mean, there, there was nights where there was a game happening on a TV screen behind you. And those people didn't show up for comedy and you had to step between them and the screen and somehow be more entertaining than whatever sports team they were watching. That's an interesting word to use, command. I think in watching some of your material, especially uh, in preparation for this and, and over your career, command is, is something you have on stage. I think you, you 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 got the audience, and it's interesting that you attribute it to these bar shows that we Drew and I experience right now. Uh, it's an important uh, attribute to have, I believe, as a stand-up. Yeah, it's... It's valuable. Uh, I can't imagine it ever won't be. But there were there were nights, especially at places like St. Dane's, uh, where your your thought was like, I don't, I don't even know if I want to get laughs. I would just love to hear the chatter go down <laughs> enough that I could that people could hear me. And that was a real win where you get on stage and something you did or something about the way you spoke or presented yourself. Everyone at least listened for a few seconds. And if you could really slam in some jokes, you could control that room and you could be the only person to do well, or you could open up the room for the rest of the comics. So that was, that was a really cool thing. It does have its downsides because when I moved to Austin for a summer in 2013, what it, it made me too brash. I was, I was too eager to go edgy or, or uh, kind of uh, macho with my material because that's what those crowds want. And then when you bring that to a, a captive uh, kind of alt comic book shop audience, hipster kind of crowd, it's, it's very off putting to have that. It, it, you can be too confident you can be too cruel in your subject matter. Yeah. And then what, how does that differ now with like, you know, I know the New York scene is obviously still just kind of resetting what does the audience feel difference from Houston and Austin up to New York? It's similar. Do you feel like the yeah. attention span shorter in New York? Well, I did live in LA for four years in between, but um, uh, New York, I really, really like the crowds because it's usually ed education or intelligence of an audience is also proportionate to their sensitivity. Mm. In New York, you get a crowd who's sharp, but can, 
can take it, you know, uh, because we, we live around such roughness. We see such tough things that we're not as easily shaken. Um, and they do have a shorter attention span. That's the one drawback of New York comedy is that your jokes can get too short and it's harder to piece together longer stuff. It's harder to tell a long story. It's harder to go more than 10 seconds without a punchline, uh, but they are captive and they are sharp and they do reward good writing. They do seem to appreciate wit and, and you know, the, the preparation put into the words. And then I guess <clears throat> contrast that to your four years in LA. I just could not make those crowds laugh. <laughs> um, Mark Hurtado said something to me that, that I still hold true. You can't really kill in LA unless they think you're off script. You don't actually have to be off script, but if it looks like you've suddenly detoured from what you plan to say and are having fun in the room or riffing on something, that's what they want to see more of. I'm very bad at that. Um, they like to see characters. They're not necessarily looking for sharp, witty writing. It's not an exhibition of wit. Um, it's, an, it's a demonstration of personality even if the jokes might not be as sparse, big act outs, big characters, those are things that really get rewarded. Um, there's, a, I would say a little more sensitivity in the LA alt rooms, maybe, maybe kind of like what Austin was when I was there. Um, but they are also on the other side of that, they're very cultured, they're very with it. They get new references, they watch all the cool TV shows. So what, um, talk about just your career jump. So what took you, um to la what 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 brought you there what what took you to new york what were the kind of the, the milestones on your career that kind of took you to those next steps as you as you progressed so uh one year in i won houston's funniest person i think by a fluke but that <laughs> opened up club work so i started doing the improv i started doing uh working i mean i was still i was working the comedy showcase already uh i was doing the other improvs around texas so i was getting to work with some great great headliners and really stretch my legs um, and then Thanksgiving, 2000, I guess, 12, um, Bob Biggerstaff let me do a guest spot on his headliner show at Cap City. And one of the people who worked there uh, enjoyed my set and invited me to a Comedy Central showcase uh -huh. at Cap City. Um, and I performed on it and I booked, uh, Adam Devine's house party from that showcase, which was again, a fluke. I can send you the article that they, they discussed how they were like, we should give this to one random person. We should give this to one <laughs> random person who doesn't live in LA and New York. And they saw my tape. They're like, yeah, him. He it sounds like he has five minutes. Uh, and that got me a manager who got me a college agent. And then that was, I was actually thinking about moving to New York at that time. And then I went and visited LA and I was like, well, I already have some ground work here um and uh i i made the move that summer uh, summer 2013. Uh, i stopped in austin for two months along the way to to film this little movie um and um yeah moved to la with nothing and struggled immensely <laughs> <laughs> what took you what what why the jump i mean obviously you mentioned a little bit that la maybe wasn't your your scene for comedy, but was there mm. something, was it the Comedy Central connection or what, what took you to New York? Oh, oh, New York was four years later, um, uh, 2017. I had been dating my girlfriend for a year. She was living in Austin, I was living in LA and she was very understanding of my career. And, uh, you know, she asked where, where can you live and do your job? And I said, it's, it's only LA or New York. Those are the only two places I can live. And she said, do you have a preference? And I said, wherever you find a better job, I'll be there. Since I'm already constraining you this much, I'll let you choose between those two. She found a great job in New York. I moved. 
Uh, and I'd wanted to move the whole time, but I just, LA, there's such a, it's, it's, there's no seasons. The weather's always nice. You can be really lazy in LA and years can just slip by. So I'm, I'm happy. I got that kick in the butt. And then I moved to New York and, um, the, the, the real wonderful thing about New York was all the mistakes I made in LA were erased. So all the faux pas, all the learning, all the, uh, all the bombs, but more, more than the bombs, just how I acted offstage, the entitlement, the arrogance, the, the desperation that, that followed me around LA, uh, no one in New York got to see that. So I, I, I was able to kind of rebuild myself as a more professional person, uh, and a more consistent comedian, obviously four years later. So I, I was very grateful for that move and I'm, I'm still really enjoying it here. You were you were probably you got early twenties or mid twenties at that point in L.A. So you were younger 25. too. I'm yeah, you could let yourself 25. let yourself off the hook a little bit because yeah, yeah, that's that is really years. young. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I saw someone posted they turned twenty five on on Instagram. I was like, oh, that's why you're like that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is a, which is an age that we see a lot of new comics. That's kind of an entry point, and so. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a great call out um, to just 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 you know be cautious and, and be self aware of what you're doing in these moments uh, at, at all stages of your career. Yeah, One and question. in Houston, so there was a weird thing about Houston, the bar scene, and also kind of that manifested in the, in the culture of the city and the, in the scene. I was a bit more arrogant. My jokes were a lot of me winning and 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 being cocky, and that was okay. That was in a way celebrated. And L.A. taught me that I needed to lose. No one wants to see this succeed, especially in L.A., a diverse, progressive city. So I, I'm, I am very grateful that L.A. taught me that. And it, it, it's, it's what drives most of my writing uh, is me losing, me being vulnerable, situations in which I uh, am, am, am insufficient. And those insufficiencies, I think, are, are what connect you with the audience. So Drew, before I get to your question, uh, I'm, I'm about two years in and I'm, I'm blessed to, I'm much older though, but I was, I have a, a writing partner, his name's Patrick Eady. And every time I tell him one of my premises, he's like, Brian, how do you lose in this bit? They want you to lose. And it's the same thing. I'm not nearly as handsome as you are, but still come out with the high cheekbones and stuff and they want me to lose. And so yeah. it's, it's good that I have that writing prompt and that friend to help me not bomb so, as yeah. much. As a white man in 2021, it's it's pretty important to lose. I mean, you can win, but you'll have the wrong kind of fan base. Uh, <laughs> right? You'll do great in the middle America and, and yeah, in rural areas, yeah. But uh, yeah. if you want a film career, a yeah. television career, yeah, I think it's important to lose. Something that I think a lot of the intermediate comics kind of always discuss and think about is when is it time to move to these A markets, you know, LA, mm-hmm. New York. Obviously, I think there's a huge benefit to starting in a B market and and working yourself to get prepared. What what's your take on when when should a comic make that move? Um, I have a firm answer. It's not until you have you're a feature, until you're a local feature, and you've really stretched your legs, and you have uh, when you can go on stage for a feature set and think, what material do I want to do? Not what material do I have to do to get to the light? I think once you move to L.A. or New York, you're never going to get feature work. It's very unlikely someone's going to take you on the road. It's very unlikely you'll get you know into the clubs in any quick time frame. Uh, 20 minutes, it's, it's so much more than 15 or 25 or even like Cap City did 30. Um, and the connections you build with headliners by featuring 
are are stronger because once you move to LA, your competition. Once you move to New York and you're hanging out at shows with people, there's there's tension between you. When they meet you on the road, they don't feel threatened by you, and they're more likely to do favors for you and recommend you for things and, and connect you with clubs and opportunities. Uh, so when you when you feel very comfortable featuring and. What was good for me was I moved very quickly. So I'm, I guess I'm a hypocrite in all this, but I moved very fast and, you know, fell on my face because of it. But what I had was I could go back to Houston. I could go back to Austin and feature for a weekend. I had connections built in Atlanta so I could go feature there. So when I was getting one spot a week, maybe in L.A. and then dying at open mics every other night, I could just say, fuck this. I need to feel funny. I need to work on jokes. They, they don't just play to the back of the room. I'm going to go stay with my mom for a week and feature and then do local shows and, and get stronger despite LA being a place where you oftentimes can get weaker. Most comedians, when they move there for a year or two, they actually become worse comedians before they pick back up. And I also think there's a ton of middle markets now. I think if you're in, in Houston, consider Austin though. Austin, that's a whole, we could do a whole podcast on that. Um, <laughs> Atlanta, DC, Chicago, the Bay, Portland, um, all these places have weekly have have showcase shows every night, multiple options. And if you're getting the stage time, don't it's not about the opportunities. It's just get better at comedy, uh, and and things usually fall in place from there. I did. I, we don't want to do the whole podcast on it, but I did want to ask you about Austin because you know you spent a little bit of time there. I think you all bumped into each other. So give us a, the cliff notes of, of of your opinion about the Austin scene uh, and and how that that can benefit or hurt comics, especially our close proximity in Houston. Well, I'll give a, a, a preface to the story. In 2013, I spent that two months in Austin. I would make frequent trips to Austin from Houston and the comics there didn't like me for the style of comedy I was doing, for the way I was too aggressively networking and asking for things uh, and, and my sense of entitlement. And then when I did their rooms, I was too brash for the crowd, similar to LA. You try to do a coffee shop, with bar material, you can you just look like an asshole. So I, I felt very uh, rejected by that scene, um, which, I mean, they had the right to reject me. But the scene was run, and, and that, that was an interesting thing about the Austin scene at that point. They had showcases. So once you got through the open mics, you were now performing on the local showcases. There was also the club, Cap City, amazing club. But they would actually book a lot of the same comics. So the club and the alt scene were one all-powerful entity. Um, mm. And what has happened now is all of a lot of those comedians, I would say most of those comedians stopped performing because of COVID and because of safety. And then uh, 10,000 open micers from all around the country came with bindles over their shoulder. Uh, here, there was a gold rush and uh, it's uh, it's competitive. It's a very bar driven scene. It reminds me of Houston when I started. It's a lot of comics with a lot of hustle. Uh, there's some real talent in it, but there's a lot to sift through. Um, I would say it's a good place to visit, but to move there, you're not just competing with the best Austin comics anymore. You're competing with everyone from around the country, all the great comics from New York and L.A. who just want to pop in for a week the way I did. Fahim Anwar lives there. Tim Dillon lives there. Jo Joe Rogan and his whole crew live there. They want stage time. So you're competing with them now. So I would say it's a pretty hard scene. Um, but if you're in Houston, definitely make a stop there every couple months. Or if you're anywhere uh, that you can fly out, go go visit Austin, email some people, try to get a week of shows. 
yeah, it seems like it's popping off there. It's really interesting, but I think you're right. The 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 competition's going to get wild, and and all the everyone's got go, you know, googly eyes over yeah. right now. So it's kind of an interesting uh, conundrum. It's like they've opened like I think in the last just a couple of weeks, two new comedy clubs just opened. Like, and then Joe Rogan's still going to do his thing at some point, whatever that's going to be. Right. It's gonna. I wonder if it's gonna pop at some point and just be like does the city want that much comedy? <laughs> like, is there enough people to enjoy all that? We'll see. Yeah. It'll, it'll, it'll overshoot and then correct, but I still think there's a lot of tourism in Austin. So they can sustain a lot of comedy clubs with how much, how many audience members they have on a given night. Yeah. I would say weirdly, while everyone's in Austin, LA might be uh, an easier place <laughs> to, to make some headway. My friend, Danny Jollis was talking about that. I mean, like, eh, it kind of removes the, there was just a, I don't know if you ever went to the open mic, the Monday night open mic at the comedy store, about 150 people would sign up on Monday for 15 spots, horrible spots, sunlights creeping through the window, seven people are inside, 40 comics are all just, or, or 150 comics who didn't make the list are just standing there with their arms crossed. Why, why is this person on stage and not me? Um, that whole vibe has been transported to Austin. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nash, I started in Nashville. And and that's got a growing scene. A couple of clubs happening there. Yeah, uh, Zanies. Zanies is huge. There's the Great comedy club. bar that does some pretty stuff. Fair amount of local showcases to hop on. Very artsy driven town. Also super touristy. Um, seems like a fun spot. It seems like it's growing. Um, some some action over there. So no, it doesn't have the hype that Austin has. But it was an interesting place to start. Mm -hmm. And I'm very glad that I moved to houston because i definitely just uh man just ate shit constantly my first six months of comedy everyone i just made every mistake like you said you can possibly make uh and so it was nice to restart in houston and be like okay i've got a few minutes i can tell some funny jokes these people don't think i'm a jerk or think yeah. i'm a loser let's start here <laughs> yeah we do <laughs> uh, okay, that's fair that's fair yeah but those are i mean even houston's a place where you're allowed to make mistakes is the, the, the anonymity those shadows that, that developing getting those those just insane amount of reps in a place where there's no judgment and nothing to lose it's really important i uh i flew to austin and i connected through nashville and the flight from nashville to austin Every single person had a guitar and a cowboy hat on. It was every, I think the pilot even had a guitar in his lap. <laughs> that is awesome. Uh, well, um, sometimes uh, we kind of transition at this point to talk a little more about writing. Uh, and I'll just shout out before we even get into it, uh, your podcast with uh, your girlfriend. Uh, she does uh, comedy too. So good. So informative. Love the way that you break down um comedy elements and writing elements you're excellent at it so that's why i'm we're super glad to have you on the podcast today because you just you're a student of it you're very adept at like even communicating it so uh, oh, thanks if you like this podcast you'd probably love uh matt's podcast she does stand up too thank you i mean you might like it better than this one but whatever <laughs> come back and listen to ours too but yeah <laughs> uh so the way we get into writing is very open-ended uh how does matthew broussard write comedy I, uh, I don't, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a disciplined writer. I have phases where I actually sit down and write. Um, Twitter and Facebook are really helpful for me tweeting out jokes because you get that, that nice little dopamine hit when it hits, you know, breaks a hundred likes. Uh, and it, it, it encourages you. It makes you feel like, you know what you're doing, sitting down and actually typing out the joke on Twitter and especially on Facebook where you're trying to cut down the words until you can get that big text. That's been the, the there's no, 
there's nothing better for me in terms of for, for word economy than that process because there's mm. always stuff you can cut the first draft has always got extra meat on it and it's it's and oftentimes in shortening it you turn it into a joke i think i think jokes oftentimes rest on the information that's missing and by seeing how much you can cut you can actually create that missing information you can build that gap and that gap for your mind to recreate for the audience the mind of the audience to recreate that's where laughter occurs very often, especially for my jokes. So that's hugely helpful. Um, writing down ideas as I have them, having the discipline to, to actually get it down on paper, um, um, cataloging my jokes. That's something I really, uh, writing down set lists before every set. That's also not a big thing. And no matter what the set is, always write down what your plan is because the more you plan, the more you can improvise. But telling yourself, I'll remember the new stuff, you never will write it down, remember, write out where to do it. If it's a shit sandwich, figure out where to put that new stuff. If it's a shit Big Mac, learn how to do good, bad, good, bad, good. If it's an open mic where you don't have time to, to close strong, it's an open face shit sandwich, open strong and new. Um, all, all important things. Um, and then uh, cataloging uh, after COVID, I, 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 was, I had to do hours again after months off. And I started, you know, I was going up with stage thinking I could autopilot through it and I could just feel these gaps of, oh no, there was more to that joke and I don't remember what it was, but I know something's missing and it would eventually come back to me. And I wrote down bullet by bullet, bullet point by bullet point, my entire hour that I'm working on and, and more, um, all the sections that are working, all the stuff that's been on TV or it's been on my Instagram, what's new, what needs fixing, what are, what are arrangements of jokes? Do I do it this order? Do I do it this order? Uh, what's a chunk of kind of iffy material that's always a work in progress. And then when that's good enough, it upgrades to the actual act, having all of that, it's amazing how much of writing, how much you can accomplish with no new ideas, just looking at all your old ideas and organizing them. Uh, Ramin Nazer had a great comic strip about that. So much of, of creativity isn't coming up with new ideas. It's just the, the ideas are there. It's just recalling them when you, when you have a pen in your hand. Um, and that makes the process much less intimidating. And I have a document uh, on Google Drive that's called Bad Ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and I try to, I look at the name of the document that the, whenever I'm like, nah, it's too stupid. I'd feel like a hack for even writing it down. No, write it down. This is bad ideas. Get the bad ideas out. So get the bad ones out of the way. So the good ones can, can come up because you got to write 10 bad jokes before you write one that's anywhere decent. Yeah. That's so good. I love the I love the the Big Macs and the open face sandwiches. This episode might be called Shit Big Mac. I think <laughs> so far. We'll see if we get something better. Sandwich. Yeah. Uh, and how often do you go back to that that bad ideas? How much bad ideas? That? A couple times a week. Um, oh, good. I look through it. Um, wow. And my especially when I'm headlining, if I do after I finish an hour set, I'll often have little tags or little tweaks that that came up on stage. Um, because an hour of material is a lot to work with. You just can't hold it all in your head at one time. And a lot of jokes you don't remember until you're doing them. And then you'll you'll have a moment on stage where you're like, this is weak or I have an idea of how to expand. I'm not going to try it right here in the moment. But then you go back and you write it in the document, put a little note. Something that Mulaney did, I learned. I opened for Mulaney and um, I didn't see him do this, but his tour manager said he'll uh, he'll come off stage and run to his dressing room open his laptop, open up a word document and type in seven words and then they there. So uh, I don't know what he's writing, but I assume he just had an epiphany on stage about a joke and is updating it. Get um, more cocaine. <laughs> Send. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, freeform writing, I'm always trying to do more of because I, I think it's very valuable, even if it feels worthless. Um, and then again, writing down set lists and keeping set lists, keeping those set lists, because a lot of times you'll write one little idea and that, that one word is that new joke and you'll forget it. If a joke doesn't stick within a week or two, I often forget it, even if it's good. Um, and, and just looking through old set lists, that's very valuable to me. And then writing after you get off stage as much as you can while you're still in that zone. Yeah. Do you have a, do you have a certain strategy or thoughts about constructing a set list, you know, say for a 10, 20 minute, uh, or, a you know, a feature set, any, any thoughts that are going into that, uh, that you always kind of think is the way you should be done or the way it works for you. So my spots are either 15 minutes around, around New York or, you know, 45 to an hour on the road. Um, and there's not much flexibility with an hour. I'm, I'm usually using most of what I have. I have a strong opener, a strong closer, and there's some wiggle room in, in between, but I'm usually not completely upending the set order. Mm -hmm. uh, I, maybe I should, uh, 15 minute sets. There's it's choosing. I mean, these are club spots, so I want to do well. Um, so choosing that opening five that really works and then figuring out where I can slide in the new, newer, not new, but newer stuff. And then how can I, you know, give myself enough time after those new jokes to get them back on my side if the new jokes just completely fail. Um, and there's always, it's always more exciting to do newer jokes, but how to, um, how to still look like a professional while fitting the new stuff in. Yeah, sounds like you have a. I mean, I, I kind of I like the idea of kind of like having a hierarchy of jokes and where they're at. You know, are, is mm -hmm. this is this in the act? Is this close to in the act? And it's get and is this something yeah. that's just open mic material and kind of keeping those lists separate? And yeah, like, I like that. Yeah, because a lot of times you'll have just one line that's funny, but um, it's it's I, I consider it similar to building a mosaic. Not that I've ever built one, but each. <laughs> each punchline you have is just some sheer miraculous coincidence. Uh, it's like, you're just breaking up pieces. If you've seen how they make mosaics, they just smash tiles. And that's what you're doing. You're smashing tiles and you get these little pieces and they have these cool shape. You know, oh, I have this, it doesn't fit anywhere right now, but who knows after I keep making more pieces where it could fit. Mm -hmm. So you keep every line that works or you just have a tag on a joke and you can mm -hmm. actually remove that tag. And functionally, it doesn't have to be attached to that premise. You can you can sneak that elsewhere. So if you hear my material, you'll hear two tags, one after the other, that sound so they they flow together just so concisely, and they sound so on the same theme. But they were written three years apart, sometimes even more. And they just I I, I rearrange them, and they fit together, and they make it sound they make it sound like I'm so much more in control of what I'm writing, and where it's really the you know I the jokes. I don't build the jokes as I need them. I build as many jokes as I can. And then, and they're a toolkit for me to put together jokes later. Yeah. I love, I love the idea that that's to me, that's um, the thing that resonates the most. I, I do love going back and finding the old jokes and, and using my new skill set that maybe I didn't have when I first originally wrote those jokes to look at and see them from a different light. And I love that idea of just digging more back into those old notebooks and stuff yeah. and, and what you can find there is pretty exciting. That's that's really because yeah, we always want that new big bit. We're always searching for that that new bit that I'm going to write that's going to really crush. Uh, maybe you've already written it, and you just yeah. need to re you just need to rewrite it. And, and it, it haunts me thinking of like when I do a joke that's strong, one of my stronger, longer jokes, and I'm like, well, this joke is I, I really like how this joke works. And it's like, yeah, you've told it 
500 times. Of course, it would be working after 500 iterations. If you wrote a joke about uh, shoelaces and just tried it every time you're on stage for 500 sets, it would be a great joke by the end of it. So what do you invest the energy in? And there's that, you know, that shiny new thing when we chase the, the completely untried, untested premise. But we often have a lot of B material. I think it's it's we should spend more time making B and C material into A material than taking F material and turning it into C material. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, one thing we also kind of get into in the writing process is how do you prepare for a set? So let's say you're preparing your preparation for an hour or for 15 minutes as you're kind of getting maybe the week before. Mm -hmm. uh, and then also like just the moments before you step on stage, what does your preparation look like? So for 15 or even an hour, I could very easily autopilot through it. It's, it's looking for all the new jokes and seeing where I can stick them. That's most of the work I'm doing in preparation for a set. Um, before I go on stage, just trying to remember that just trying to, Keep my mind, keep in my mind what the new jokes and where they they could fit, um, and um, I don't get that nervous that often. Um, or or I'm planning what I can do up top in that room. I'm trying to think of like uh, a joke about the room or someone in the room or what's happening, because to have that thirty seconds to sixty seconds of jokes that only work right then, right there, <laughs> it's a really great way to start a set. So trying to look for anything I can I can do to not have a generic opener. I have a question about that. What if it doesn't land in that moment? You have this joke, I got to do it. And you just start and shit and it's not even, it's a throwaway. You got to dig right out. Does that change your, your, your approach and your set? Yeah. Sometimes I'll rush to a, a stronger joke faster. Yeah. If I really, yeah. if I really fall on my face, it's like, well, can't do that, you know, softer opener. Now I have to go with the tried and true. I'll even brush off something I've done on TV or something like that. You know, like really old joke, a really sure joke. Uh, but sometimes, if the first joke misses, I think, <clears throat> good. I don't need I don't need these training wheels of getting started. I like the idea of building back. I, fa I, I failed. Maybe it's on them. Maybe it's on me. But I think there's there's something really powerful of watching a comedian's opening joke miss and them not seeming flustered by it. Just like, okay, you didn't like that one. I'm going to do another one I want to do and not the one I have to do. So I try to think about all the good comedians who who, who are so good at digging out of holes and and just appreciating that I've given myself a challenge. Yeah. Do you find it different? Like in the green room before you go on set, are you like silence, leave me alone, either a few no. minutes with myself, or are you chatting with people right up to the moment that you step on stage? I did um, Conan in 2016 and you stand there backstage and there's two guys who look like dock workers and they're holding the curtain <laughs> and their job is when they hear your name to pull the curtain back. And uh, I was standing with them and I was very nervous. Um, and uh, they, I think they asked me a quick, they go, this, this is your first time? I go, yeah, yeah. They go, okay, we won't bother you. I'm not, I said, no, please, please bother me. Please, <laughs> I would like to be talking to you until they call my name because I would like that, the tone of that conversation to then transfer to whatever I'm saying into the microphone. I would like for it to sound as natural as possible. I would like for the person who I am before I step on stage to be as close to the person I am after I step on stage. And uh, they said something really fun. Uh, I, I, I asked, um, I said, how, how nervous do I seem? They said, you don't seem that nervous. I go, do, do people get really nervous back here? Because these are people who, who witnessed this moment. Uh, they said, oh yeah, people get really nervous. I go, like who? He goes, the ones you would least expect. 
<laughs> because the people who have done this the most times are the ones who are pacing the hardest back here. I thought that was <laughs> such a fun detail. That's interesting yeah, we, to, to find your authentic voice right before you get on stage. That's, that's really smart. Uh, and, yeah. So you don't go up there and sound so robotic that you're just having conversations in the green room, just allowing yourself to kind of get rooted and grounded in your own personality so you can show up the most authentic. That's great. Yeah, especially when you have that smile still still going from yeah. the end of that conversation was. Yeah. Though I have had, I remember I did a college show one time and I was killing with the bookers, with the students <laughs> who ran it. We were all, oh yeah, it's gonna be a great show, talking and riffing about their majors and everything. And then they bring me on stage and I eat shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Not a foolproof method, but still good yeah. the most yeah. of the time. Well, let's queue up the clip. So tell us about this day. I think we queued you up for the Comedy Central clip that were, do you remember specifics about this show? Me? Yeah. Yeah, This is, I think this is my half hour, right? I believe so, the beginning of it. Blue plaid? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about that day. Anything you remember specifics? Um, that day, I was in New Orleans. I had booked my half hour. It was my second time submitting for the half hour. I got it off of a headliner set I had done at Acme. Uh, I sent in up like a 45 minute tape, they took it. Um, I was really excited. Half hour was um, was a big deal to me. It was a very legitimizing thing. And the fact that it was a full half hour made me a little less nervous. I was still very nervous backstage. Aparna had just gone up before me. Oh, yeah. um, um, DeVito, um, what's not DeVito? Yeah, DeVito uh, opened it and, and the crowd seemed warm. Um, I don't remember there was anything I was particularly scared of. I knew my set list. I had my set down. Um, and it, it was, it was exciting. And 30 minutes is, it's less scary because there's, there's more room to adjust. I think, I don't, I don't know if I had done a late night set. No, I had, I had not done Conan yet. Um, but I had done short sets and, and happened to be under time, having to be over four thirty, but under five minutes was so scary. And it was, it, it seems like you can mess up more in a short set. Um, but this one, I was like, I know how to do a half hour. I have a half hour I'm really excited about. And uh, I was I was just so excited to be part of that, the, the half hour experience. Cool. I'm going to play the clip. Cool. I, I think women tend to be less comfortable with their bodies than men. And I think a big reason for that is because the names we give uh, for female anatomy are very ugly sounding words, words like labia majora, labia minora, perineum, fernunculus, cervix, clitoris. Fun fact, one of the things I just said was a Harry Potter spell. <laughs> I'm not telling you which one. The reason I know a lot of this stuff is uh, my mother was, uh, she studied biology, so my brother and I were raised to always use proper anatomical terminology, to never use slang terms for body parts. And uh, that's okay most of the time, but every now and then it's not very appropriate. Like I was with my then girlfriend one time and uh, I was about to euphemism her metaphor. And uh, in the heat of the moment, uh, I used the word vulva. And she had about the same reaction, just like, ah can't you just say vagina? And I was like, well, no, because I'm referring to the exterior parts. Uh, the vagina is actually just the canal, just the internal portion, the stuff on the outside, that's the vulva. She's like, just stop saying that word. And I was like, no, vulva, 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 vulva. Listen, I'm doing you a favor, okay? You can't just go around the rest of your life using vagina as an all-encompassing term for everything between your legs. That's, it's like calling your face your throat. Okay. 
I got about half of you with that one. That's a good, that's good. No, that's really good. Like, here's the thing. I don't, I don't want to sound unappreciative. You guys are a great crowd, but my dream is to get to perform at an OBGYN convention. Yeah. It closed with that joke, just like the loudest applause break ever. People just standing, screaming, throwing pap smear kits and Nuva rings at the stage. I, uh, I'm single right now, uh, not because of the vulva thing, for other reasons. Uh, and I, en- I enjoy being single, but I feel like I've been single for too long, and I've started to pick up a lot of weird habits because I don't have a girlfriend to just be like, hey, stop chewing your fingernails, or mason jars don't double as latrines. Like, really simple things. <laughs> and, you know, and one of the weirder hobbies I've picked up as a single guy is uh, I like to make little clay sculptures, uh, about this big or so, uh, of Pokemon. Um, <laughs> And here's the weird part, because that's not... Um, they're not bad. They're actually like really good. And if that sounds cocky, just remember what I'm bragging about. Now, here's the thing that makes that extra strange. Because of the way I look and am, I don't really pull off quirky very well. I feel like I give off one of two impressions. Either dumb frat boy or charming serial killer. That's it. Right? So... When you guys picture my bedroom, you probably see, like, I don't know, it's like bro-y kind of, like, protein powder and a Fight Club poster. Uh, and they're there. But <laughs> now picture, in addition to those, a menagerie of handmade anime figurines and, ta-da, murder dungeon. That's where I live. And I, uh, I had a wake-up call recently where I went on a date, and it went well, and I lured her back to my apartment. And... Um, as we were walking in, I realized I forgot to tell her about this. So the first thing she sees is just a hundred of these little guys just lining my shelves, overlooking my bed like gargoyles of self-inflicted abstinence, right? <laughs> and for a moment, I think I'm artistic. She thinks I'm autistic. And in the silence that follows, you can hear her ovaries just go shump up into a ribcage like tubes at the bank. And uh, she looks at them. And then she looks at me with fear in her eyes. She's like, oh, uh, you didn't tell me you collected toys. And I was like, no, no, no. I made those. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Very good. They are really good. Oh, he has one. Wow. Yeah, Yeah. that's great. That's Merch. You see, yeah. Yeah, right. Whoa. That's really good. Thanks. This one took fucking forever um from from rick and morty serial killer yeah yeah the excited (laughs) assassin yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's very apparent oh that character sorry you found a way to like inflict some like self-deprecation into you into all those bits in a very fun way that you might not see coming uh and like the little little notes like oh sure the the fight club poster is there but uh, yeah. yeah, I just I love the way that you always find that that little deprecating part in there always to keep to keep the I don't know is it something to make the to make the audience feel they're better than you a little bit or like what what is it about self deprecation that seems to be so works so well? It just makes people feel better about themselves. I think yeah. that's it. I, I also just cringe at the notion of me trying to be cool. I'm sure I do it, but just the the idea of me ever bragging about anything. I was actually really, really averse to talking about the Pokemon sculptures on stage. Uh, I hated the idea, but my friend Chase DeRusso, um, who was a Houston comic, was actually pictured here. 
Um, he was one of my first friends in comedy. He was really encouraging. He'd been doing it a few years longer than me and, and really, uh, was helpful. He came over to my apartment and he saw all these sculptures and he goes, what are these? And I said, Oh, I make those. He goes, you have to talk about that on stage. It's so surprising that you look like this and do that. And I was like, yeah, but that's just going to seem like a ham fisted. I, I look like a jock, but I'm actually a nerd kind of thing. And people would see through it. He goes, and he said, just, just do it. Just talk about it. So I found the initial story, which was a, a setup with no punchlines except for the um, no, 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 I made those, uh, which I didn't even <laughs> expect to be a punchline. I, I expected that to be a setup to the punchline. And I had a line after that, but that line got such a laugh that it ended up being the end of the joke. Um, and then I built all the story around it, worked on the details. And also that did happen. I did have a date come over and she saw them and her, her first reaction was, oh, those are those are those toys. And I said, I made them. And her real reaction was really funny. Her real reaction was, um, oh, are you like one of those handsome serial killers? Uh, <laughs> that, that was just a... It was, like Dexter. It was like a yeah. yeah. She was like, I was reading about that. Like, the you know, the good-looking one. Um, and that's why that line, that's where the line of the joke came from, dumb frat boy or charming serial killer uh, came from that. And, and that whole incident, you know, you rearrange stories. But... Um, it, 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 there's, uh, I like where, where I can lose, win, and then lose again, which is the, uh, I make these sculptures, uh, which is a lose, right? And then they're really good, which is a win. And then if you think that's cocky, just remember what I'm bragging about is to try to yeah. take it back down because I have to lift myself up enough to knock myself down. And it's, it's, mm. it's a very fun game to me. And it's, it's very cathartic to have an insecurity and and then when you announce it to the audience and they laugh and validate it it's it suddenly doesn't hurt it's almost it's almost as if being uncertain of ourselves this was hurt and then once you can, get, can accept something wrong with you and everyone ad admits that that's wrong with you you're like well if this is just the reality of it it doesn't hurt as bad if they know it and i know it, it, it i can get over it yeah the therapeutic part of comedy uh mm -hmm. the that's well put. The one thing I noticed is is a, a rhythm that you have where you you come out very intelligent writing, uh, going over the the you know the parts of the vulva, the the all this you know the doctor speak, and then you you you, but then you make it playful. You like I read silly Harry Potter books just like you do, and then that kind of that's disarming. And then same thing, euphemism or metaphor, kind of a cool line, clever line. And then you're like, I'm also talking about sexual things. Like, I'm just like you. So you, you find a way to stay sort of highbrow, intelligent, but also bring it down to relatable. And I think that rhythm really helps your comedy. Smart, which is not a good thing. Yeah. Um, but I, I do like using it was it was a thing it truly was a thing in my family where you, you were allowed to talk about these things it was just curse words it was just slang you know if you're going to talk about it don't don't be uh, be direct with your language because there's nothing wrong my, my family was really like, there's nothing wrong with sex and when we, we stigmatize the words surrounding it we stigmatize the act and that creates a lot of bad things but if you can if you can talk about it properly and astutely there's there's nothing wrong with that and i also knew that censors don't censor the the correct words penis is not bleeped on tv dick is vagina vulva labia are okay pussy is not so it it was a challenge to me with this set when i did the same material on conan to see how much i could say without censors getting at me because i was still following the rules how sexually explicit you can be before you get in trouble and uh, that was also one of my challenges 
And to say the word vulva as many times as I could in a row. <laughs> yeah. I when I did it on Conan, I think I had a rhythm. You know, there's a rhythm you've built. Vulva, 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 vulva. I think is the way I would say it. Which is, I think it's five. But I think in the moment on Conan, I slipped in an extra two because I was just thinking, who's ever said this word this many times in a row on television? I should break the record. Like I want to. I want to do five is a lot, but seven would for sure be the record so i think i slipped in a few more um on that broadcast yeah i love and i love how personal your your material is you talk about it a little bit on your podcast about how people sometimes forget punchlines but they remember like the personality they remember the premises um i think that's very interesting is that and does that inform your writing as well as you write you're you're not thinking so much of observational stuff but you're digging into your personal experience almost completely yeah or your, or your uh, history it's what i liked in comedy it was i cite him often but donald glover i loved comedy when i watched donald glover and he talked he told this one story about going from a mostly black public high school to a mostly white private high school um he felt more pressure to be black amongst the white kids than amongst the black kids and i don't know what i relate to about that but i did go to high school in georgia <laughs> And I did go from a poor public school to a very rich private high school. And the, the feelings of alienation and being so put off by that wasn't clearly very different uh, than, than feeling pressured to act black. But uh, hearing him talk so specifically of that was just a revelation of you're allowed to talk about that. You're allowed to, to bring up things that specific to you um, and with no fear of alienating people who might not have those experiences. And, and the idea that in such a specific story, you can find so many universally relatable emotions uh, is, is what drives me to write more personally. And also, it's just there's too many people writing jokes right now. It's so hard to write an original joke. It's so hard to write an observational joke. Observational comedy is all but dead. If you can write a joke that has nothing to do with you, it's based on things we all know. There's it, it's you'd have to be a genius to write a purely original one sentence joke. The more personal I make it, the harder it is to steal and the more likely it is to be original. So just from, from that framework of trying to not be a hack, the, the more I look into specific and quirky details of my own life or unique, not quirky, um, the, the less likely I am to run into um, uh, other versions of it. I was going to say imitators, but no, people arrive at these things completely on their own. Yeah, the, with the meme culture and stuff, like but as yeah. soon as something happens in the world, there's a thousand memes about that circling right. around. How are you going to beat the entire internet yeah. to the punch? At best, you're going to be first to it. And within a month, it'll be a stock joke. It'll be a joke yeah. you've heard from 50, 500 people. The, uh, what's the, you used to cough to, co used to cough to cover up a fart. Now you fart to cover up a cough. And like <laughs> Someone wrote that, but we'll never know who it is because I've heard it from a thousand different people now. Yeah. So and, and that's why I try to like when I'm digging into my own life, it's it's just where are their competitive territories? Obviously, in current events, in politics now, it's really competitive, and just in in I think in social issues, it's really hard to write a good trans or non-binary joke that doesn't come from a personal perspective, or or uh, yeah, the the hot button issues. What we think really edgy issues are actually really competitive and all, sometimes boring. Like eating ass is is a joke. Is a, <laughs> premise i hear so often that it's gonna be really hard to have an original take on it yeah well, that's encouraging i think that it's encouraging to someone who wants to be a writer to say you know what i don't i don't have to you know 
do all the stuff that I can dig it, look inside myself, find something really personal, something unique, mm-hmm. and find a way to make that funny to audiences. And I love doing that. And uh, yeah, I think that's it's you do fall in love, or at least you get to you feel like you really know that comic when they step off stage rather than just you you laughed at a bunch of silly jokes like you're like ah i kind of i get that person i understand where they're coming right. from i have some sort of deeper connection than just i thought they were funny yep and that's that's when people it doesn't matter how hard you make them laugh that is important but when you when when they feel like they know you as a person when they feel like they're friends with you because of your material that's when they type in your name on google and look at your events <laughs> calendar and pull up their credit card to buy tickets that's because yeah. people or you back or you just start and i also think you, that, like i do on the street in different yeah, cities and you there. follow me to different cities and pretend you're <laughs> literally <laughs> following you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, I think uh, oftentimes people are uh, the reason they don't talk to themselves is they're they're insecure or they don't find themselves interesting enough. And I think most people have a story to tell. And if you think you're a boring traditional person, most people are as well. They will relate to that. It, it, it also, like uh, Mulaney and Bargazzi are kind of on the surface, just funny daddy white dude, but so many of us can relate to that. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. So we're going to, we're going to let you up the hook, but before we do, we got our last segment. It's called last laugh. Let me roll the clip. I hate that. All right, listen, <laughs> you have one joke to write on your tombstone. Matthew Brissard is going to be remembered by it. Yours can be somebody else's. What is your last laugh? Oh, man, for a t- what's a good tombstone? Um, not to scale? That would be funny. Um, <laughs> not to scale. <laughs> not to scale. Uh, really? Yeah, not to, not to scale. Yeah. <laughs> he was six foot five. Uh, con- content no longer available. That'd be a funny <laughs> uh, content no longer available. That's that's my gravestone. Well done. Well, hopefully, like we don't it. see it anytime soon. Uh, <laughs> thank you for uh, for joining the show, Matthew. We've got the. I'll throw up one more time. She does stand up too. Terrific podcast. Anything else? We don't place where people can find you. Yes, I'll be at Magoobies in Baltimore, uh, April twenty second through twenty fourth. Very cool. Nice. Is Monday Punday still? Are you still putting fresh content on Monday Punday? It's not fresh, but there's about 500 of them to look through. If you want to, if you want to solve some puzzles, check out MondayPunday.com or the app Punday. Um, if you want to feel frustrated, <laughs> <laughs> very cool. Well, well, thank you for taking the time to join us, Matthew. We'll hopefully see you around Houston or maybe up in New York or anywhere on the comedy scene. Drew is going to find you. Uh, he'll be in Baltimore. I'm sure of it. <laughs> He's actually in my living room right now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I can hear him. Thanks, thank you, Brian. Absolutely. Thanks for listening, guys. It's been Breaking Down Bits. Thanks for listening to Breaking Down Bits. You can keep in touch or get more when you follow at Breaking Down Bits on social media. Visit the website BreakingDownBits.com or shoot us an email at BreakingDownBits at gmail.com.